Athens. That's the center of all intellectual thought in the Roman Empire, in the Greek world. These are where the greatest thinkers are gathering together and discussing things. So verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and the marketplace. Every day, those who happened to be there, also some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Others said that he seems to be proclaiming of to be a proclaimer of a foreign god or foreign gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul and brought him to the Aragopis, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some surprising things to our ears, so we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time and nothing else than telling or listening to something new. Paul's in Athens. And there are idols everywhere in Athens. Stone idols. Everything from little figurines to things that are a couple feet high all the way up to three or four stories tall. And Athens has one of the biggest temples. Uh, you can, it's still standing this day. Um, the top part of it is the, 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 the triangle part is removed in some parts. But it's, still, it's, it's absolutely huge. And it stands on top of a giant hill, a rocky hill. Not like a, like a hill or a mountain, but just a rocky cliff um, called Mars Hill. Everywhere that Paul has been so far might have an idol here or there. But we know, like, right? Columbus is the 14th largest city in the U.S. And we have some pretty big buildings and some pretty cool things. But even as the 14th largest city in the entire U.S., it doesn't come anywhere close to going to New York and, and seeing all the buildings there and the, the big jumbo screens and, all, and the Eiffel Tower and all that kind of stuff, right? There's just a wow factor when you get to certain cities. And so even though he's been in cities like Philippi, which is pretty good size, and Thessalonica, it's nothing compared to Athens. Nothing to compare. I mean, this, this is like going from Columbus to Dubai for Paul. And what he sees is just absolute wealth and enormity of structures. And there are idols everywhere. When I was there, even to this day, many of them have missing arms or heads. And many of them have been carted off to the museum. But they're just, they're just, they just tower above you and everywhere. And half of them have been carted off to museums. And Paul becomes horrified by it. The idolatry is just in your face everywhere. And he's greatly upset and angry in his spirit. This, this is the complete opposite of everything he wants for people. It is the absolute epitome of being enslaved to the demonic realm and all of its falsehoods. And, its, um, and that's what he becomes upset with. Now, don't get me wrong. Athens is deprived. It is every kind of sin that you can possibly imagine there. And it's in your face celebrated everywhere. You think America is going bad. And you think America is celebrating um, sin. And I'm not saying it's not. But it's nothing 
nothing compared to the absolute universal acceptance, participation, and promoting of all these sins that Athens and the Roman Empire would have. But yet what angers Paul more than anything is their idolatry. Because he knows that the idolatry is the root cause. The idolatry is the embracing of the false god. If you get that dealt with, then God can deal with all the other things. God can deal with all the other things. And so this is what angers him more than anything. And so he's preaching. Athens was the capital of the debate teams. This is where the greatest thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates had been, other ones that Pythagoras and a bunch of people that you probably don't know as well, they were there. And they just would stand around and debate. Now the only people who can be philosophers and debate are people who are so wealthy that they don't have to work. And so they would just sit around and they would debate. And sometimes they would make things up just to see how well they can make an argument. And convince people like, oh, wow, you actually argued that stupidity really well. I'm going to give you four stars. And they would literally like pass out badges to each other for what they could argue in an irrational way. Um, but most of the time they were interested in philosophy. They were interested in truth and virtue. And now, we would not agree with their definitions of virtue and truth all the time, um, but these were the things that they valued. And they would, they would talk about it. And they, would, they just liked hearing new things, like being on social media. Ooh, 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 what did you say? And they wanted to know the new thoughts, the newest idea coming around the corner. And Paul's preaching. And they begin to misunderstand Paul. Because Paul is preaching Christ and the resurrection. For the, the Gentiles, the resurrection is what? What in the world? Judaism and then Christianity is literally the only philosophies and only religions that value the resurrection of the body. That even value the body and this life. And if you want a really good book on why Americans really do not value the human body, read a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Percy. I know the elders in our church are going through it right now. I love, I've always, I love Nancy Percy. I've read, it is absolutely, she is crazy intelligent. And she used to be a feminist, hippie, anti-God, got converted by, um, at Labrie by Francis Schaeffer, who is like crazy intelligent too. He's like the 1970s version of C.S. Lewis and then some. Like C.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis like merged together. Um, and she wrote, I mentioned though another book before called Total Truth, which is absolutely phenomenal. But she's basically going through the body war about how America is waging war on the body through transgenderism, abortion, euthanasia, um, um, sex slave trade industry, all these things. And how we think we're saying the body is great and awesome and therefore I can do what I want with my body because I love my body. It's actually the complete opposite. And so, and the, the great thing is, if you're struggling with how to navigate truth and also being loving in this day and age, she does a really good job of being gracious and loving and compassionate towards all these people who are going through all these things but yet at the same time saying this is not just biblically wrong, this is philosophically detrimental to us as Americans, as any culture. 
um, but especially Americans because we're the craziest right now and all these things. Because outside Christianity, outside Yahweh, there is no value for the body. There is no value for the body. Without the body, why do you need the resurrection of Christ? Without the body, why do you need the kingdom of God on earth? Without the body, why do you need the second coming of Jesus Christ? Without the body, why do you need the God-man? It undermines all the most basic theological foundational principles of Christianity. The garden and the image of God. Jesus coming as God-man. Dying and raising for your sins in order to usher the physical relationship with God on earth, in heaven, together for all eternity. You get rid of the body and all that just disintegrates. And that's the devil's attack, one of many attacks. And so for the Greeks, they have no value for the body. What happens in the body stays in the body. And what happens in the body has no reflection on the afterlife in any kind of a way. The only thing that reflects on the afterlife is whether you can stay on the God's good side for the 80 years that you're on the planet. And if you can win that lottery, then you're good for the afterlife. And why would you ever want to come back to this place in any kind of way? In some ways, you can be kind of sympathetic to that. Why would you really want to spend all eternity in this world? But that's only if you believe that this is the way the world's always been and always will be. And not that it wasn't created this way and it won't be this way forever. The resurrection is just ridiculous. It's dumb. And they don't hear anybody talk about the resurrection ever. And what's interesting is the word resurrection in the Greek is Anastasia. They probably thought, many scholars believe that Paul is talking about Yahweh and his female goddess wife, Anastasia. Or Jesus and his female goddess wife, Anastasia. And you would say, that's such a horrible and misunderstanding. How could you misunderstand that way? If you have literally no folder and no compartment in your brain for a physical bodily resurrection or see any reason that you would ever want that, then heck yeah, you would constantly be hearing the word Anastasia as a female goddess, right? It's only if you have a compartment and a folder and a category for all that and maybe even a desire for that that you can see it in its other context. It's under meaning. They probably thought he was talking about this new God and his wife. And they're like, ooh, this is interesting. I've never heard that one before. Come, come, come to our gentlemen's club and we will drink and you will tell us more about this, so speak. Okay, and that's kind of what they're doing here. They want to hear this. There were two major groups that were also there. And that was the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics and the Epicureans were two of the most predominant and influential philosophical schools of thought in the Roman Empire and as well in Athens. The Epicureans, they were disciples of Epicurus. They were actually named after Epicurus. They believed that pleasure, not wisdom, was the greatest good and that the most worthy pursuit of man. They didn't hold wisdom and reason rationalizing up they believed that pleasure was a pleasure itself was the highest pursuit. But they believed that it was to be pursued in moderation. Epicureans also get a bad case because they think that we think they're just a bunch of heathens who pursued sex, drugs, and alcohol, and tomorrow will, will die, right? And they were just about pleasure. But they didn't mean that. Because they knew that if you got really drunk, you would have a hangover, and that's not fun. And, and we can go on and on with every kind of vice. 
So they believed that pleasure was the ultimate goal, but within moderation. Within moderation. They did not want to be overindulgent in any kind of way. Emphasis was placed on pleasures of the mind, enjoyment of life, and contentment, rather than on pursuing physical pleasure for the sake of pleasure. So think more of Buddhism, where it's more about enjoying life to the fullest and living in the moment and, and it just being at peace with what's happening around you. And if your grandchildren are here, enjoy them and pursue them and that kind of stuff and, and whatever, whatever. Not just the sake of being indulgent, just enjoying life and experience it. They emphasize avoidance of pain and a life free from hassles and not desiring anything that one did not already have, for that creates suffering. So like Buddhism, if you have what you have, don't desire more. Don't desire keeping up with the Joneses, because there's a good chance that you'll never get it, and then that will just leave you depressed and empty in a lot of ways. And so be content with what you have. They believe that the gods took no interest in human affairs and that everything happened by chance, that death was not the end of all, and that one should not fear death. So ultimately, they didn't believe the gods were really real. They didn't believe, and if they were real, it didn't really matter because they weren't involved in your life in any kind of way. You were in control of your life. You were a master of your own destiny, and you determine how things went. The Stoics follow the teachings of Zeno the Kip, um, Cyprat. This is, he was alive between 340 and 265 BC. The name Stoic comes from Stoa, a particular portico where he taught when he lived in Athens. So we use the word stoic as like, oh, he's so stoic, like proper and upright, maybe even uptight, right? And, and, and kind of non-emotional and kind of a fun killer, right? Um, that's because we misunderstand what stoics are, but the word stoic actually just comes from the name of a portico. And they would often, he would just often stand there a lot and do his philosophy, and lots of people began to follow him. And they were known as the people who hung out at the portico, and that particular word, and they became known as the Stoics based on where they gathered, not based on the name of somebody or a particular definition of a word. They believe that pleasure or meaning was found in individual self sufficiency and rationalism, wisdom. They believe that pleasure was found in being self reliant, self sufficient, and being rational and wise. It was an intellectual thing. And this was the ultimate pleasure. Learning, learning, learning. Loving to learn for the sake of learning. Finding pleasure in learning new things. Talking about things. Being wise, being rational. So that you do not become the fool. And just do dumb things and ruin your life. Because if you're not wise, you don't find pleasure. Yes, you can find pleasure in being unwise and just letting your vices take hold of you. But we all know eventually addictions will destroy you and eventually vices will ruin you in some kind of way and there's no pleasure. They emphasize the dichotomy between things that we can control and things that we cannot control. So the prayer of serenity, right? They, they, they wanted to emphasize what, can it, what is it that I cannot control? Don't waste your time there. That's not wise. That won't bring you pleasure. That's spinning your wheels in the mud. And that's not wise and that's not fruitful and that's not going to bring any pleasure. And then the things that you can control. Stokes believe that they must focus on the things that are under our control and not worry about external forces. They believe that virtue is the only good and thus everything else is having no interest and no external thing or circumstances can ultimately affect one's character. The only evil is the fear of pain and death since this leads to irrational behavior. They believe you focus on the things you control. That's it. 
Everything in the house is out of your control, you just release it. There's no reason to worry. It doesn't matter whether the gods are good or bad, whether they're against you or not, whether they're going to snub you or not. You can't do anything about it anyway, so why worry? Focus on the things you can control, and if you put your energy in that, then you can create enough of a good world around you that that will probably be pleasurable and peaceful and satisfying enough that if the things out of control do come, they won't threaten you or hurt you as badly. They believe that the only thing that was really something that you should, the only evil was the fear of pain and death. Because when you become afraid of pain and death, that's irrational. You can't do anything to prevent pain. You can't do anything to prevent death. But yet pain and death are big fears, right, of every human culture. And so they believe that this is the only evil. And they believed that nothing externally could affect your character. Only you could affect your character. And only you can make yourself good. So obviously there's pretty rational ideas here, right? Things you'd be like, yeah, I agree with that. But ultimately, it's like, yeah, but there is more evil than just fear of pain and death. And yes, there are many things outside of you who can just rip your life apart no matter how well you're controlled. And the other thing is if you work really hard to perfect the things in your life, you tend to de-perfect the relationships in your life. People are messy and they're complicated and relationships are hard. And if you try to perfect all the things in your house, like things have to be in this place and done this right, da-da-da-da-da-da, you end up putting such a burden on everybody in your family that they then get deperfected and their emotional abuse, so to speak, or the, the expectations they can't meet up to, or your anger when everything's not in place. Eventually, one way or the other, sin always has its toll and messes up your life. Only Christ can actually redeem things and make things right. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was everywhere and in everything and everything was God. What's interesting is Epicureans are actually very close to the Eastern philosophy of Buddhism. And Stoics are very close to the Eastern philosophy of Hinduism in that kind of a sense. Why do I spend time on this? Because Paul, when he gives his speech at Athens, he's going to deal with a lot of their ideas and their philosophies. And Paul's not just going to preach. He's tailoring his reasoning from Scripture, his reasoning from creation, to the audiences he's speaking to. And he knows his audiences. And he's going to speak to the Epicureans and the Stoics in a way that he did not speak to the Jews. And he's not going to use the Bible because they don't believe in it. He's going to use the things around them that they do believe in when he gives it. Now, when they call him a babbler, they don't mean this word babbler like your little preschool kid who just babbles nonsense and won't shut up, or some drunk who doesn't make sense and just keeps going on, or some mentally insane person. They don't mean that he's a babbler in that way. This refers to someone who picks up seeds like a bird here and there. A bird goes over here and picks up a few seeds and leaves a bunch of them alone, then goes over here and picks up a few more and a few more. So think more like a buffet, where you just kind of grab a few things here and there and there. And if you go to the Asian buffet, they always have food that people, well, don't like Asian foods. There's always pizza or some other things there, right? Or macaroni and cheese. We are at the Asian buffet the other day, and some guy was all by himself at the Asian buffet. And he just got a huge plate, like, I mean, no joke, of macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I'm like, 
It would have been way cheaper and more efficient for you just to buy a couple of boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese and stay home. But you came to the buffet and paid 12 bucks to like pig out a macaroni and cheese with all this selection. But that's what it is. You just kind of pick a little here and a little here and a little here and you put it together and you're like, oh, good meal. That's what they're accusing him of. That he's picked up an idea here and an idea here and an idea and he's woven it together into this new way of thinking, which we would use the, the more technical philosophical word would be syncretism or you're synchronizing a bunch of things that were never meant to be synchronized together. And he has formed this new religion, and they're really interested. It's like, well, I, I, I know Legos. Think of each Lego as a different idea and a thought. And I, I, I've been at the store, and I've seen the, the Death Star Lego, right, where you can put that together. And I've seen the, the Lego, like, Jeep, and you can put that together. But, Paul, you've grabbed a bunch of Legos from here and the Legos from there and the Legos from there, and you've put it together in this weird new contraption that we've never seen or heard of in any movie or any book or anything like that. And it looks really interesting and, and fascinating. Tell us more. We want to know how this works. That's what they mean by babbler. They don't mean insane or nonsensical without thought. They mean like, ooh. This is a merger of a bunch of ideas that we've never heard before. I am intrigued. And they invite him. And they want to hear more. And they believe that he's teaching a new God. And they're always interested in adding a new God to their collection because what if there's a God that they've missed? And they need help in that area. And if they know this new God, then they can burn to that, this incense and stuff, and then they got another... Right? Better have a good lawyer in your Rolodex and a good doctor and a good mechanic and a good, right? And it's like, ooh, I didn't know I needed a good seamstress. I want that added to my Rolodex, right? Because what if I need to be protected there? What if I'm somewhere and I get a rip in the hole in my pants all of a sudden? I need that dealt with quickly, right? This is what they think about. They invited Paul to the Aragopis. Now, we don't know exactly what the Aragopis is, Every time the word is used in Greek, the Greek um, writings and stuff, it refers more technically to a group of people, a council of Athens. So the Aragopis is a council of Athens that dealt with ethical, cultural, and religious matters, including the oversight of education and regulation of many visiting lectures. Most likely the hill is where they met. So the Aragopis is also the name of a hill. And it sometimes is referred as the hill up close where the temple of Athena is, the goddess of wisdom. That's why wisdom is so important in Athens. And, or sometimes this plateau that was lowered down on the hill and had a building built there. Most likely, um, it's that all these places became known as Aragopis because this is where the council met at different times in the year or different places. And so these places. So it's more about not Paul going to a specific place to talk, but more about Paul going before a specific group of people, a council. So think of this like a college or um, high school board. And they're responsible for the cultural, and religious, and education of the people in their city. And he's going to talk to the board about these new ideas that he has. 